Hey guys, it's Hatchet, and welcome to Gone Before Their Time, the 27 Club podcast. This is episode 3, and today I will be talking about the life and career of the third member of the 27 Club, Robert Johnson. Today, I'm excited because not only do I really like Robert Johnson, and I think he was a great musician, but guys, this might be my first actually full-length episode. At least I'm I'm really hoping that this will be a full-length episode because I did so much research on this one. So what I do for my research is I write down all my notes and stuff onto a Word document on my computer so that I can organize it and whatever, uh, and then I write it down in a handmade notebook specifically for whoever I'm researching. Guys, I had... 57 pages of notes on my Robert Johnson Word document, and when I copied it down, I had to make new pages in my notebook to write it all down. So if this episode turns out to be super short like the other ones, something is going to happen to somebody, and it is not going to be good. (laughs) I'm, I'm just kidding. Anyways, let's get into this super long episode I've planned for you guys today. Okay, so Robert Johnson's story begins before he was even born. Julia Major, his mother, married a landowner and furniture maker named Charles Dodds in February 1889 in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, when Charles Dodds was 22 years old, and everything was going well for a while. Uh, They had a bunch of children together, I think uh, 10 in total, and then Charles ran into some trouble. Charles allegedly got into a knife fight with some prominent Italian landowners in the area named the Marchettis. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. It could be Marchettis or something completely different, but I'm going to go with Marchettis because that's how I read it as. But so uh, he got into some trouble with the Marchettis after finding out that Charles and one of the Marchettis shared the same mistress, although the mistress hasn't exactly been confirmed, like the whole story about the mistress, Uh, and surviving members of the Marchetti family deny that this happened, but in any case, Charles and the Marchettis had a dispute, and Charles was in big trouble now. Uh, He allegedly went back to his home and hid in some bushes in his backyard, and when the group of men backing the Marchettis came to his house, they demanded to see Charles, and they asked one of his daughters where he was, which luckily she didn't know, so they ended up leaving that day. It is said that after they left, Julia Dodds started taking food and water and stuff out to Charles, and he apparently ended up hiding in the bushes there for roughly two weeks until the men stopped coming to the house. Charles was then forced to flee town in the dead of night disguised as a woman with the Marchetti's hot on his tail. He ended up relocating to Memphis, Tennessee, and he changed his name to Charles Spencer to avoid detection. Now, this part of the story is important because without Charles leaving Hazelhurst, Robert Johnson probably would not have ever been born. Uh, So Charles moves to Memphis, leaves Julia with their 10 children, who she slowly begins moving to Memphis to join their father after she got evicted from their home for not paying roughly $150 in taxes, which in today's money would be around $4,190. So quite a bit. Uh, now this is when she moves into the home of 24-year-old Noah Johnson with her remaining children in around 1910. She ends up having an affair with Noah Johnson, and on May 8th, 1911, Robert Leroy Dodds, later known as Robert Johnson, was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi as the illegitimate child of Julia Dodds. 
Now, apparently Noah Johnson couldn't handle this one extra child living with them, and him and Julia started getting into fights more frequently, and Julia just ended up moving her and her children out of the house completely, and pretty much just wandered around to different plantations and stuff like that, uh, looking for work, while her eight-year-old daughter, Carrie, took care of baby Robert. Now, at this time, I found in one source that Robert was very possibly undernourished due to the family's financial situation and the fact that they probably weren't getting food every day, and this lack of nutrition is estimated to be a factor in Robert's later eye issues, which uh, some people said that it was either a cataract or a lazy eye, Um, but either way, he had one bad eye later in life. Uh, Because Julia couldn't find any work, she ended up having to move to Tennessee around 1913 or 1914 and stay with Charles and his new family, which just added a lot of tension between her and Charles. And Julia ended up leaving soon after arriving, but left her children with the Spencers, who at the time were essentially a bunch of strangers to her children, which caused a lot of emotional issues with Robert, considering he was only three or four at the time. However, the Spencers would turn out to be the closest thing he ever had to a real family, and this was when he began to discover his love for music, when Charles and Robert's older brother started to teach him guitar. Uh, A few months after Robert and his siblings moved to Memphis, Robert started going to school, and he quickly discovered that he loved learning and he loved being in school. Unfortunately, Robert was soon ripped away from this lifestyle that he had grown to love when Julia came back into the picture and took him back to the Delta to help on the farm her and her new husband, Dusty, owned. Robert was thrown into a new lifestyle where, instead of going to school from morning to afternoon, he would work on a farm schedule his new stepfather called From Can to Can't, meaning he would start working early in the morning as soon as it was light enough for him to see, and he would keep working until it was too dark for him to see. Uh, The only thing Robert enjoyed about this change was the new music he heard on the plantations. He also spent a lot of time in nearby Robinsonville, watching all the musicians perform there. Eventually, Robert was enrolled in school again, but this new school was nothing like his old school, and its main main function uh, was basically just to teach basic reading skills, so he was already more educated than most of his other classmates would ever be. He also never really got along with his mother, and especially his stepfather, so he ended up signing the school record as his own legal guardian, which the first time I read that, I laughed out loud, and I was just like, yes, Robert, and I just found that so funny. Like, that is the most passive-aggressive thing I've ever heard in my entire life, and is just further proof that Robert and Dusty did not get along at all. They would get into fights at all the time, usually about the fact that Dusty didn't like the fact that Robert preferred to play music than work in the fields. At this time, Robert was a teenager, and he was able to travel a lot more places by himself, so he made it a point to leave as often as possible and go back to visit the Spencers, who he still considered his real family. Uh, He found Charles Spencer to be a much better role model than Dusty, and Charles just overall understood him better and recognized Robert's passion for music. It was right around this time that Julia finally told Robert that Charles was not his real father and that his real father was Noah Johnson, which is when Robert switched to the name that we all know him as today, Robert Johnson. At this point, Robert had fully fallen in love with music, specifically the guitar, but because Dusty didn't allow music, he certainly wasn't going to allow Robert to own an instrument of his own, and Robert resorted to building his own. 
He was now playing music constantly, even the harmonica while he was working, but Dusty would yell at him and tell him to stop so that he was able to work better, so Robert created a sort of harmonica holder so that he could work and play at the same time. And now, uh, Carrie was starting to notice how much music meant to Robert and the fact that he was just not going to be a farmer, so she helped him make his own guitar out of a cigar box, bailing wire, and a piece of scrap wood for the neck. Uh, While Robert practiced on this, he and Carrie both began to save up their money for the ultimate goal of a real store-bought guitar. And in 1927, they were able to reach their goal, and Carrie and Robert were together able to buy an old guitar with two missing strings. Eventually, Robert was able to work up enough money to buy the two extra strings, and it is said that his guitar playing improved significantly with the addition of these missing strings. This guitar marks the beginning of Robert's unbreakable bond with music, and for the rest of his life, he would rarely, if ever, be seen without a guitar. Now, up until this point, Robert was just trying to get into music because he genuinely loved it, but now he was starting to realize that being a musician would, number one, get him out of field work, number two, help him attract lots of women, and number three, it would help him earn more money. Robert started going around to different houses and plantations, basically giving, uh, you know, on-the-spot concerts to anyone who wanted them. Uh, Dusty still wanted him to work in the fields, but Robert was not having it, and they started to get into arguments a lot more. Dusty would beat him, and every argument ended the same, with Robert grabbing his guitar and storming off not to be seen for quite a while. He liked to go into town a lot and perform for the people there, and he was starting to build a bit of a reputation in his town as a good guitarist, and it was with his music that a 19-year-old Robert was able to swoon a 14-year-old Virginia Travis, and on February 17th, 1929, Robert and Virginia lied about their ages and proceeded to get married in Penton. Robert still really loved music, so it was very uncharacteristic when he decided to give up the guitar and get a job working in the fields to earn more money to support his new wife. That summer, Virginia got pregnant, and towards the very end of her pregnancy, she decided to travel to her family's home to have the birth. Robert agreed, and Virginia soon left, leaving Robert, who was supposed to be looking after the farm, alone with his guitar, so he decided instead to go and start performing again, because no matter how much he loved his wife, with her gone, there was no way he could resist. He eventually left to go to Virginia a little later, uh, but he thought he would take his time and stop at a few points along the way to perform and maybe make a little extra money, which he thought was giving Virginia time to have the pregnancy and recover before he got there. Uh, meanwhile, Virginia was having a difficult pregnancy, and uh, th- this is awful. Uh, both she and the baby ended up dying as a result. Virginia's family buried them both shortly after and began to grieve. Uh, Now, Robert was still on the road currently, so he obviously didn't know anything about what was going on now, and he still thought he was going to show up and see his wife and newborn baby. When he eventually did get there, it is said that he walked in the door with his guitar in his hand, which infuriated Virginia's ultra-religious family. They blamed him for both of their deaths, and they told him that everything would have gone fine if he had been there with Virginia instead of out playing the devil's music. Obviously, this hit Robert super hard, and this was when he started to turn his back on religion, the church, and God. It is said that when he had been drinking, he would start cussing out God so loud and so much that people would get up and leave because they feared getting struck down for his blasphemy. Shortly after Virginia's death, Robert moved back in with Julia and Dusty and started 
fighting constantly with Dusty again, right back at the same old thing, because Dusty still wanted Robert to be a field worker, and Robert refused to submit to that lifestyle. Uh, it was around this time that Robert started going into town a lot more to see the local musicians playing at Jukes and on the, performing on the street and stuff like that, especially Sunhouse and Willie Brown. Robert would go to Willie Brown and Sunhouse's performances, and he would wait until they were in the back during a break when he would get up on the stage and he would grab one of their guitars and start playing. It is reported that Robert's playing was so bad that patrons at the Jukes would go into the back and make Sun and Willie go out and tell Robert to stop, which Sun and Willie did. They would take away the guitar and tell Robert that if he wanted to play on the stage, he should play his harmonica instead because he was much better on that. But Robert ignored them and continued to get up and play on the stage when they weren't looking and people continued to criticize him. Although this part of the story might be a little inaccurate because given how old Robert was when he was doing this, he had already been playing guitar at like house parties and stuff like that for a few years at this point. So it is speculated that he probably wasn't really that bad of a guitarist and in reality, people didn't like him because he was playing uh, just a different kind of music than they came there to see. Um, in any case, Robert got fed up with the constant ridicule he was, saving, he was receiving sorry, from Son and Willie's patrons, and one night he up and left the juke completely, and nobody heard from him for roughly, roughly a year, depending on which source you look at. Then one night after his long absence, Robert, with a guitar of his own, walked into a juke where Willie and Son were playing. Son recalled that night, saying, quote, Me and Willie, we was playing out to a little place called Banks, Mississippi. I looked and I saw somebody squeezing in the front door, and I seed it was Robert. I said, Bill, Bill. He said, Huh. I said, Look who's coming in the door. Got a guitar on his back. He said, Yeah, no kidding. He said, Oh, that's little Robert. I said, Yeah, that's him. I said, Don't say nothing. And he wiggled through the crowd until he got over to where we was. I said, boy, now where are you going with that thing? To annoy somebody else to death again? He say, I tell you what to. He say, this your rest time? I say, well, we can make it our rest time. What you want to do, annoy the folks? He say, no, just let me. Give me a try. I say, well, okay. I winked at Willie. So me and Willie got up and I gave him my seat. He sat down and that boy got started off playing. He had an extra string he'd put on it a six-string guitar made into a seven-string. He'd put it on himself. Something I had never saw before, none of us. And when that boy started playing and when he got through, all our mouths were standing open, end quote. Robert was playing better than anyone in that room had ever heard before, and he was now even better than Son and Willie. People had no idea how Robert had gotten that good on the guitar that fast, and they figured it must have some sort of supernatural element to it. This, of course, is where the most famous legend in all of blues comes from, Robert Johnson at the Crossroads, the story with which Robert Johnson is most associated with. The legend goes that Robert went to the crossroads of highways 49 and 61 at midnight, and he sat there playing his guitar when the devil approached him and offered him otherworldly guitar abilities in exchange for his soul. The legend says that Robert agreed, and the devil took his guitar, tuned it, played a short song on it, and returned it to Robert, sealing Robert's deal with the devil. Now, obviously this isn't really what happened, and there's a much more reasonable explanation for how Robert got his abilities so fast. The night Robert left the juke a year earlier, he had traveled to Hazelhurst in search of his biological father, Noah Johnson. After an extensive search throughout Hazelhurst with no luck, Robert decided that his quest for his father was in vain, and he decided instead to go into one of the local jukes. This was where Robert saw the local legend Ike Zimmerman, who played guitar better than anyone had Robert had ever seen. 
Robert asked Ike Zimmerman to teach him how to play like he did, and Ike agreed. While in Hazelhurst, Robert fell in love with a young girl named Virgie, and the last name changes depending on the source. Some say Virgie Kane, some say Virgie Mae Smith, some say Virgie Jane Smith, so we'll just stick with Virgie. And uh, he ended up getting her pregnant. When Robert found this out, he tried multiple times to convince Virgie to move with him to Memphis, where they could spend their lives together with their baby. Uh, but Virgie's religious parents refused to let her go, claiming that they would not have their daughter go off with a man who played the devil's music. This was now the second time Robert had received this accusation about his music, and he left Virgie alone for the most part after this. Um, Robert met another woman not long after, named Callie Kraft, and they got married on May 4th, 1931. Uh, but Robert never really loved Callie Craft, and when she got dangerously ill, he didn't really pay any attention to her, or not as much as he should have been. Uh, meanwhile, Virgie gave birth to Robert's son, Cloud, or Claude, I, I think, sorry. Uh, she gave birth to Robert's son, Claude, on December 12th, 1931. <clears throat> Robert eventually left Callie and tried to get Virgie to move with him one last time, which Virgie declined. Callie died in early 1933 without Robert by her side, though this death did not really affect Robert that much. He was focused on a much more important goal now, which was finding Son and Willie. After Robert had astounded everyone in the Duke after arriving back in town, he started traveling all around and his crowds kept getting bigger. He was finally getting popular and he was beginning to ramble more now, uh, but Robert still wanted to try to build a life with Virgie, so he visited her a few more times and to try and get her to move back with him, but she kept refusing. In August 1932, Robert went to see Virgie and tried to convince her to bring herself and Claude to Memphis with him, but she still turned him down. Robert gave her 20 to $30 to help with Claude, which in today's money would be roughly 400 to $600, then left, and that was the last time he saw her. After this, he didn't like to talk about his relationship with Virgie, and he preferred to just keep rambling. He bumped into an old friend, Eula Mae Williams, once when he was traveling, and she asked if he was going to see Virgie and Claude. Uh, but he said no, that he was not going to, because he was more focused on his music now, and he didn't have time. This didn't mean Robert wasn't open to new relationships, though. On one of Robert's rambles, he stopped in Helena for a while and met a woman that he quickly grew close to. He ended up staying with her for a while and growing close to her son, Robert Lockwood Jr., in the process. Robert Johnson was only a few years older than Robert Lockwood Jr. was, but Lockwood still remembered looking up to him. Lockwood claims that he wanted to be a piano player before he met Johnson because he considered guitar to be limited in what you could do with it. But when he saw Johnson play, he was amazed, and Johnson helped Lockwood build his first guitar by stripping the thin panel off the front of a record player, attaching it to a cheese box, and then he fashioned a neck out of some wood. Uh, Lockwood's mother was the first woman since Virginia Travis that Johnson had felt truly deep feelings for, but even she was not enough to keep Johnson from moving on to a new place. Fortunately for Lockwood, Lockwood had become a good enough guitarist by now to accompany Johnson wherever he went. They started playing together with Lockwood seconding Johnson. However, in late 1935, Johnson got run over by a truck while performing with Lockwood in Tutwiler, Mississippi, and Johnson decided that it was time for him to become a solo act again. He officially left Lockwood and his mother going off to ramble on his own this time. His goal now was to finally get his music recorded. In 1936, 25-year-old Robert Johnson walked into H.C. Spire's music store. 
He auditioned, and H.C. Spire was impressed, so he gave Robert's name to Ernie Erdl, and Robert was soon invited to make recordings in San Antonio, Texas. Robert was ecstatic, and he told all his friends all about it. <laughs> By November 21st, Ernie Erdl and his wife Mary Erdl were on the road to San Antonio with Robert, and what they would do due to the racist nature of the time period was uh, Ernie and Mary Erdl, who were white, would sit in the back of their own car, and they would have Robert, who was black, drive so that people would think he was their chauffeur to avoid any unnecessary confrontation. When they got to San Antonio, Robert tried to play on the street like he was used to doing, but he was confronted by police who thought he was just a poor musician who was trying to play on the street as a living, and he tried to tell them that he was with the recording company, but they didn't believe him, and they not only arrested him and threw him in jail, but they also beat him up and destroyed his guitar beyond repair, which, when I saw that, I was like, mm, that seems highly unnecessary. Uh, Robert was booked on false vagrancy charges, and when he got his phone call, he made it to Don Law, who was one of the producers for the ro for the recording company. Don Law was able to successfully get Robert out of jail, and he also arranged to have Robert borrow a guitar for recording. The next day, Robert started his first recording session at around 10 a.m. Now, there are a lot of sources that claim Robert recorded facing the wall, but this is inaccurate. He did turn his back when he was asked to play in front of a few other musicians that were there at the time, but that was the only time he did, so. Uh, and that was also just something that he did when he was performing in front of people. Like, if he felt you were trying to watch him play guitar too closely, he would turn his back or just stop playing altogether. So this behavior during his impromptu concert was not very strange, but he did not record that like that. When he recorded, it was very common at the time to record at least two takes of the same song just as a precaution, sort of like a backup tape, and Robert made sure that all his second takes sounded nearly identical to the first ones because he viewed music as a finished product, and his reasoning was pretty much like, well, a song sounds the same every time I hear it on the radio, so it should sound the same every time I play it. On his first day of recording, he recorded Kind-Hearted Woman Blues, I Believe I'll Dust My Broom, Sweet Home Chicago, Ramblin' on my mind, when you got a good friend, come on in my kitchen, Terraplane Blues, and Phonograph Blues. Terraplane Blues is the song that Robert is most famous for, even still today, and his younger sister, Anya C. Anderson, said that it was inspired by a 1936 green Hudson Terraplane car that was frequently parked near the house they grew up in for a while. The next day, Robert recorded was November 26th and he only recorded 3220 Blues that day. However, the next and last time he recorded, on November 27th, he recorded quite a few more songs, which ended up being Their Red Hot, Dead Shrimp Blues, Crossroad Blues, Walkin' Blues, Last Fair Deal Gone Down, Preachin' Blues Up Jump the Devil, and If I Had Possession Over Judgment Day. He was allegedly paid $100 for these sessions, which in today's money would be almost $2,000, and Robert had always been someone somewhat poor, so when he received this money, he was pretty stoked. Uh, it should also be said that these songs were all being recorded at a time when you would only have two songs on a record, one on the front and one on the back, because that's all they could fit. So Robert's songs weren't really meant to be played all one right after the other like you do now with CDs and modern day, you know, records and vinyl and stuff because they would all sound very similar. 
and that was true for most musicians at the time. It was very common at that time for musicians to have specific parts in their songs, usually at the beginning, that were supposed to all sound the same on every song. They were meant to be like that, because then it could easily be identified as one of their songs. It was supposed to be that, like, as soon as you heard that opening, the listener was like, oh, sweet, a Robert Johnson song. They were meant for radio, not for being played right one right after the other. We have that technology today, though, so we can listen to Robert Johnson songs consecutively, uh, and it can oftentimes come off as repetitive. Sorry about that, that was my phone. Uh, but anyways, so, yeah, today it can come off as repetitive, um, but at the time that was seen as, like, a great marketing tool for making your music easily recognizable. Anyway, after Robert came back from recording in Texas, he moved back in with Julia and Dusty for a few months, and this time Robert and Dusty seemed to get along just fine, and it is speculated that this is probably since Robert had finally gotten recorded, so Dusty didn't see it as so much of a waste of time anymore. Robert's first record, which featured Terraplane Blues on the front and Kind-Hearted Woman Blues on the back, was released in March 1937, which made Robert very happy, and it also seemed to make the record company very happy because Robert was invited back to Texas to record again in June. This time, Robert traveled to Dallas to do his recordings, and being June in Dallas, it was incredibly hot, and what made it even worse was the fact that they had to keep the window in the studio closed while they recorded so they wouldn't get any street sounds coming in and showing up on the recordings. So what they did, I find it kind of cool, uh, they took these big sheets of ice and they set them in tubs and then they angled the fans that they were using uh, so that they were blowing across the top of the ice into the rest of the room. It didn't actually end up working a whole lot, didn't really help at all, but it's a cool idea though. Uh, Robert Johnson recorded a few new songs at this first session, which were Stones in My Passway, I'm a Steady Rollin' Man, and From Fort Until Late. He recorded a lot more in the second session with Hellhound on My Trail, Malted Milk, Drunken Hearted Man, Traveling Riverside Blues, Stop Breaking Down Blues, Little Queen of Spades, Me and the Devil Blues, which is actually my favorite song of his, uh, Honeymoon Blues, Love in Vain, and Milk Cow's Calf Blues. Some of the songs that he recorded in this session were really used as a quote-unquote evidence for the legend of his deal with the devil, including Hellhound on My Trail and Me and the Devil Blues. As Robert finished his second recording session, he sent a postcard to his sister Carrie in Memphis. The postcard read, quote, My dear sister, hope you are okay. I will be home soon. Tell all hello. I haven't wrote Lewis. Sorry, but haven't had the time. Tell mother I wrote you. Yours truly, Robert Johnson, end quote. He earned a couple hundred dollars from this session, which today would be several thousand, and he was just ecstatic because this was probably more money than he had ever had in his life, and he left for home on June 20th, 1937. After this second recording session, Robert was somewhat of a local celebrity back home. People started recognizing his music when he would play at Jukes and on the street and stuff. Um, at this time, performers playing their own music was not widely accepted, so any performer, no matter who it was, only ended up playing original songs about half the time. Nobody really wanted to hear the musicians' own songs, they wanted to hear the so popular songs that were on the radio. Uh, and there was actually this one time when Robert was playing and a woman from the audience told him to play Terraplane Blues, and he told her, oh, well, that's actually my song, that's the one that I wrote. And she didn't even care, she was like, well, you better play it then. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Robert 
and Johnny Shines were known to play and travel together sometimes. And there was this one time when they were traveling uh, that they ended up in this small town and they were asked to play something on the guitar. So they did and they started attracting a crowd. So they played for a little bit and then they realized that people weren't coming to see them because they liked how they played the guitar. They were coming to see them because black people were rare in this town. They, they literally were only there to see the color of their skin because it was so uncommon there. And once Robert and Johnny Shines realized this, they were not into it, and they decided to leave immediately, which I don't blame them. Uh, there were some rumors that Robert was playing in a band for a few months before he died, but that has never been confirmed. And unfortunately, due to poor sales from his second recording session, Robert was never asked back for another one. Johnny Shines has said that he would travel with Robert to all different kinds of places, but he did not go with Robert when he told him he was going to Mississippi, and that was unfortunately the last time Johnny saw Robert, which just the fact that Robert told Johnny he was going to Mississippi and Johnny didn't want to go because he had a bad feeling about it, and then that ends up being the last time he ever saw Robert, just stuff like that is always like real spooky to me. And Johnny wasn't even the only one that had a bad feeling about Robert going to Mississippi either. A little while before Robert left, Carrie forced him to go to the doctor after he complained about having stomach and chest pains. The doctor diagnosed him with an ulcer, and he advised Robert to quit drinking as soon as possible, but Robert did not like to hear that, so he just ignored him and decided to not follow the doctor's advice. Okay, little tip, guys. You very rarely know better than a doctor, okay? Listen to your doctor, because they know better than you do 99.9% of the time. Carrie was concerned about Robert, and she didn't want him to leave Memphis, but Robert was stubborn, and he left for Greenwood, Mississippi, anyway. While Robert was in Greenwood performing, he started seeing a woman named Beatrice Davis. The problem was that she was married to a man named R.D. Ralph Davis, and Davis found out that they were having an affair. He was not happy, to say the least. He found out Robert was playing at a juke at Three Forks, and that was when he decided to take out his revenge. On August 13, 1938, R.D. Davis slipped some poison known then as Passagreen into Robert's drink before it was handed to him. Now, this was not, lo this was not known as a lethal drink. People in bars would use this a lot on, you know, people that were causing a nuisance and people that they just didn't want in the juke. Uh, they would slip it into the person's drink, and then the person would get sick, and they would get take they would take them out of the establishment. But then the person would go home, and they were fine. All right, so this poison was not known for killing people. It was very commonly used because everyone knew nothing bad would happen. So obviously, when R. D. used this in Robert's drink, this is what he was thinking too. He never intended to seriously hurt Robert. He just wanted him to get really sick, and then he figured Robert would learn his lesson and move on. However, that's not how it happened. Robert drank the poisoned alcohol, and then he got up on stage and started playing. He started feeling a little weird soon afterwards, uh, and but people would not let him get off the stage. He actually told people, like, hey, I'll still play, but I'm sick, and people didn't care. However, about an hour later, Robert's friends had to take him off the stage because he was so sick that he could no longer play. He was taken into a back room to try to recover, but when they realized he wasn't getting any better, they took him into Baptist Town so that he could get a good night's sleep and he could come back better tomorrow. 
But once he was dropped off in Baptist Town, his stomach pains and his nausea just kept getting worse, and it is speculated that he must have vomited at least once, which would have made some of the varices, I think that's how you pronounce it, the varices that he had in his esophagus, to rupture blood. And people think this because he was visited the next day, and it was reported that he was howling and bleeding from the mouth. At this point, Robert did not get medical help, but even if he did, there is still a very good chance that he would not have survived due to the loss of blood alone. Now, this must have been terrible, because he did not die for a few days. He spent the next two days in his room in agony until Tush Hogg f went to Baptist Town and took Robert back to his plantation house. Robert survived a night there, but he had a major hemorrhage and did not survive mu very much long longer. On August 16, 1938, Robert Leroy Johnson died due to complications after being poisoned by the jealous husband of the woman he had been seeing. When he died, Tush Hogg went to his employer, Luther Wade, to tell him that Robert had died. But since Robert didn't work for Luther Wade, Luther only asked a few questions before deciding to bury him. Therefore, no autopsy was performed, so most of the medical things that we hear related to his death are purely guesses, except for the first-hand accounts on what people saw. And since, <coughs> sorry, and since people don't know exactly what happened at the time, uh, or they didn't know, uh, there were lots and lots of rumors going around about how he died, most of them inaccurate, and even his death certificate, which wasn't located until Gail Dean Wardlow found it in 1968, listed the cause of death as no doctor. And I'm going to close out the episode today by reading a quote from Robert's sister, Anya C. Anderson, remembering how they found out about Robert's death when she was 12 years old. One real quick thing, though, I forgot to mention this earlier, but nobody actually knows exactly where Robert is buried. Like, there are actually three different places they claim to be the site of Robert's burial, and none of them have ever been confirmed. So I just thought that was worth mentioning. Uh, anyway, here's what Robert's sister said about finding out about his death. Quote, The telegram came to Sister Carrie on St. Paul Avenue. I don't know who sent it. I wasn't there when it came. Sister Carrie went to pieces. I think she was closer to Brother Robert than anyone else in the family. Everyone was in shock. He was dead two weeks before we knew. It felt awful. It was hard to believe because he had just left. I was sad, but as a child, you don't really know what death is. We weren't going to sing Jimmy Rogers together ever again, or sing John Henry together anymore. You don't realize that as a child. I didn't know we weren't going to see his feet rocking anymore, or watch his slides going up and down the guitar strings, end quote. And that is it for today. I hope you guys liked this episode, and be sure to like and follow wherever you are listening. This upcoming January, I will be going into depth with the fourth known member of the 27 Club, a swing jazz musician named Nat Jaff, which we might be back to the short little mini-episode again, but it's fine. <laughs> I hope you tune in next time. You guys can email me at gonebeforetheirtime at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments, or if you just wanted to let me know how to pronounce something correctly. You can also find me on Instagram at gone.before.their.time. Thank you for listening to Gone Before Their Time, the 27 Club podcast. Your host is Hatchet, and the scripts that are read in this podcast were written by Hatchet. The links to the sources used for this podcast episode will be posted in the description for this episode.